You already know what time it is. Welcome back into the NFL with AJL, episode 58. I know we've been gone for three weeks, had a crazy December, getting through Christmas, getting through the holidays and the new year. Wanted to thank everybody for sticking with me until then. Hope you guys had a great Christmas, great holiday season, great new year. Hope you got to gather around with your family. Hope you've got your resolutions or your goals, your missions for 2024 intact. I know it was a little bit of a tough year for me, but I was grateful to be able to come back out with the podcast for you guys, have the support of y'all. I know we're late a little later than usual, but I wanted to put the event out there. You could have been anywhere else in the world, but you're right here tapped in with me on the show. Again, I know it's been about three weeks. I know I picked up some part-time positions, bartending. As the real estate market starts to recover, had a couple closings to end 2023. We're getting the schedule back on track. You know I had to get on here and talk football as we are on the second day of 2024. Before we get into it, y'all please make sure to like and subscribe to the show. Share the stream wherever you may be watching. Please subscribe to us on YouTube if you'd like to support the channel. You can drop a super chat or a super thanks. No donation is too big or too small. At the NFL with AJL, hashtag the NFL with AJL on all social media platforms. Hit that bell on YouTube so you never miss a post as well. Of course, the QR code there in the corner of the screen, as always, will give you every bit of social media and podcast content wherever we're located. If you can't find us, you're simply not looking hard enough. The CFP semifinals reaction, the Ravens destroy the Dolphins, and really the Ravens look like Super Bowl contenders. Cowboys-Lions controversial ending, the NFL playoff contenders, Russell Wilson being benched, and much more. Good to be back. Not going to lie, I was a little nervous getting on the show tonight. Again, it's been about three weeks, exactly three weeks since we've had a show very low-key December, but I'm glad to get into 2024. Season 2 will be kicking off of the NFL with AJL right around when the Super Bowl is underway, which is about a month away. Let's jump right into it with some college football as the New New Year Six Bowls have come and gone. Michigan beats Alabama in overtime 27 to 20. And I know y'all remember me saying that Alabama was going to win it all. I really thought that Alabama was the best team in the country after beating Georgia the way that they did. And after going and beating that number one team in the Georgia Bulldogs in Atlanta, in the SEC championship, we know the dogs were undefeated and everything Alabama had to do to get that game in their grasp and ultimately go on and be in the college football playoffs. We remember the controversial selection. That was about the last time I did a show. But now, Big Blue, Go Blue, anybody but Bama goes into this game in the CFP semifinal. First bowl win for Michigan against a top four team. Harbaugh's on top of the world. McCarthy, Corum, Roman Wilson, they are all feeling themselves as they are now in the national championship. And you look at this game starting off, it felt like Alabama was really going to be in the driver's seat. J.J. McCarthy got bailed out by an out-of-bounds defender who picked him off on the first play of the game. Of course, they ran the replay back and they saw that Um, You know, the defender was out of bounds, so they did get bailed out there. It felt like it was going to be Alabama's game possibly from that point because the Michigan Wolverines only had four yards of offense, excuse me, two yards of offense on their first actual possession of the game. But you saw quickly within that first possession as well, Jalen Milrow under duress all game. And Michigan won in the trenches the entire time, and it absolutely showed. And that's why Michigan was able to win this football game. Y'all heard me talk about it. If you can win that boring standard, grinded out, gritty type of football in the trenches, getting after the quarterback and protecting yours, which is exactly what happened in this one for Michigan. It was no surprise that they were able to win the football game and ultimately that it had to go to overtime tied at 20 
for them to be able to do so. Two major sacks on Jalen Milrow as they get into the game. Then Bama, you see they were gifted a touchdown after the special teams muff from Michigan. So you see Michigan being very solid on the defensive side of the ball, but they come into this game and you realize that the special teams is still something that they've got to clean up. And I was impressed with the Michigan, with the way Michigan came out in this game as well, getting after Jalen Milrow, the two major sacks, forcing Alabama into a fourth and 25, really set the tone in this game. Michigan's linemen finished the game with 20 tackles, eight tackles for loss, six sacks. They had five sacks alone just in the first half. Darby, Fred, good to see you guys in the chat. Thank y'all for sticking with me in our small hiatus as we get into 2024. J.J. McCarthy though, threw three touchdown passes in this game, and this Michigan offense really rallied from being down 20-13 to 13 with four and a half minutes to go, scoring 14 unanswered points, and the win in overtime. Blake Horm is getting all the talk. We know how much he means to Michigan, and of course, he'll probably be heading to the NFL draft as a pretty solid running back. Of course, we see Roman Wilson as well making plays in this game. Michigan's first bowl win over a top four team in the final year of the four-team college football playoff system that we've seen for a decade now. And shout out to Michigan's offense really staying together despite getting just 44 yards in its first four drives of the second half before being able to rally with four and a half minutes to go, scoring those 14 unanswered points like I just mentioned. And to know again that Michigan, after throwing what was almost a pick on the first play of the game, two yards on its first offensive possession. I mean, Alabama fans and even me, I was watching. I'm like, wow. Okay, the, here here he goes. I said coming into the game, Alabama was going to run away with this game. They were going to wipe the floor with Michigan. And clearly I was dead wrong. Alabama didn't come to play in the trenches. Michigan was way tougher than Alabama could have ever thought about being in this game. And that's why they were able to grind out a true signature, physical, punch you in the mouth, hardball win. We've seen Michigan in the last couple of years as well go down 14-0 early on to UGA and then to TCU in the past two years, 7-0. Before you know it, at the end of the first quarter, it's 14-0 and it's just not looking good for the Wolverines. And even after Alabama's first touchdown, Michigan Michigan's defense really, really stepped up. Again, five first-half sacks in this game, forcing three straight three-and-outs, and they only allowed four yards on 12 plays for the ensuing plays after Alabama scores the touchdown with the muff punt from Michigan. Jace McClellan runs it in on the scamper, and Michigan never had a chance of, of touching him. But to know that Michigan did melt on special teams, and, and usually when you melt on special teams, which is a pretty you know simple, I know not everybody plays special teams, but you're supposed to have that down pat. Field your kicks have your punts, make it work well, get good coverage on the back end so you can make it harder on the offense. Knowing that they muffed one to recover it at the one and then muffed one earlier in the game to where Alabama walked in on the rushing touchdown with Jason McClellan, but they stayed true in the trenches. They fought through an offense that was really, really struggling in this game against Alabama, and they won it on the ground and in the trenches, smash mouth type of play in overtime in this win. I want to talk about the final play of the game because I was actually kind of dumbfounded on it until I went back and watched Nick Saban's explanation on it. And even then, when you look at how Alabama had been playing all game, Jalen Milrow wasn't you know, scaring anybody with his arm. He hasn't really done that all year. Can he throw the deep ball? Yeah. Can he have magical throws like he did against some, you know, some throws against Georgia and the throw against Auburn in the Iron Bowl? Yeah, absolutely. But Michigan was probably the hardest game and you know, maybe kind of rightfully so, or not even rightfully so, but kind of a dumb moment. You're in the college football playoffs. You're playing the number one team in the nation in Michigan. Michigan's defense 
was not allowing Jalen Milrow to necessarily be special. Now, yes, did he have some runs where he got loose a little bit and Jace McClellan was doing great? Yeah. But Alabama was not dicing up anybody with their armor in the pass game in this game. So Nick Saban clearly did not trust Jalen Milrow. They don't have elite receiving talent this year like they have in years past with all the receivers we know that have gone to the NFL. And Milrow and McClellan really feel like the focal points and the big-time players in this offense, especially in this game. It was an RPO. It collapsed on the outside really due to bad execution. So Milrow had no choice but to run it up the middle. If he would have scampered to the outside, he probably would have got caught as well. You see both of the edge defenders. I think it was a linebacker coming around the bottom side of the screen, which would have been Milrow's left. And then also the linebacker on Milrow's right. They both collapsed the pocket. Jalen Milrow wasn't going to go anywhere. I still don't necessarily agree with the call on this, but what was Nick Saban to do? If, if you're asking me, I'm trying to line up Chase McClellan maybe on a screen or some sort of wheel route, and I'm not saying that was successful for Alabama all game, but it's a horrible look. When not, not even people are complaining about you being in the CFP, but when you lose in overtime on a QB draw, there was no window dressing. There was no play action. That was just QB draw straight up the middle. Again, it wasn't RPO. I don't like the call. Some people are defending the call for Nick Saban. Either way, Michigan was all over it. They downed them in overtime, 27 to 20. Uh, JJ McCarthy played a great game. John Harbaugh clearly outcoached Nick Saban in this game. You know, I was looking at the TV when it was 20 to 13 with about four and a half minutes ago, and I said, you know what Alabama does, what they always need to do. Alabama gets these 20 to 13, 20 to 19, 20 to 16 when it comes down to it. Look at how they Georgia. Alabama had not had a convincing or great team all year. Yes, it was convincing over Georgia, but the points, you know, it wasn't a down, it wasn't a slaughtering, it was a back and forth. It felt like Michigan controlled this for a good bit of the first half, maybe first, you know, third of the game. Alabama comes back, has a couple of scores, and then Michigan just locks it down on the back end. Alabama didn't adjust well. And even though it felt like they were up and they were going to walk away with this game when it was 20 to 13, because it felt like that to me, Michigan stood them up, forced some turn, not turnovers, uh, forced some turnovers on downs, got them into punting situations. And they were able to escape. J.J. McCarthy, by default, raises his NFL stock. And Michigan beats Alabama to go on to the national championship. Darby, Fred, what's up? Fred said Georgia would have beat any of the four teams in the playoffs. You know, you're probably right, Fred, because Georgia could have faced off against Alabama again. And it's always hard to beat a good team twice, so I won't knock you there. Um I think Georgia would have had their money, you know, run for their money with Texas. I think Georgia would have had a run for their money against Washington. I think Georgia would have had their run for their money against Michigan, knowing how all of those teams played. We're going to talk about Texas and Washington next. Of course, Texas was filled with some penalties. They didn't look super great. They kind of got off to a slow start. Gio, what's up, bro? Good to see you, man. Uh, I know you've been bouncing around everywhere. Hope your family was good for the holidays. They should have, they should have the national champion play Georgia at the end because why not? Yeah, why not? Absolutely. Just bring them on to Georgia. We'll go ahead and play them. If we smack them out of the park, then we can just have our three-peat in and we'll call it a day. But Fred, I, I might have to hold you on that one. I don't know if Georgia would have beat any of the four teams in the playoffs. Of course, it's possible, but I'm not going to say it was far and away because I said Alabama was going to drag the floor with Michigan, and that didn't happen. Washington beats Texas 37-31, to 31, spoiling Texas's college football playoff debut, the one and only time that they make it in. Washington advances to the national championship 
Michael Penix, absolutely sensational, over 400 yards, two touchdowns, one of the lowest sack rates in college football at 8.1%, the left-handed phenom. And I, I, I'm left-handed, so I, by default, love Michael Penix. And the fact that he plays very great football at this point in his career, it's just going to be a plus. It was the reason I was a big fan of Tua. Very elusive, very smart, very great at Alabama. And you're left-handed, you're definitely going to have my support. But Michael Penix is the absolute real deal. And it is going to be a blast watching him play in the national championship. Final numbers of 430 yards, two touchdowns. PFF actually credited him in this game with six big-time throws and zero turnover-worthy plays. That's a lot to say because usually those big-time throws are going to be met by close interceptions. Maybe it was a tip. However, it can possibly be perceived. I mean, you see him and his receivers dialing up big shots in this game. Romeo Dunze, or Romo Dunze. Um, Lord, I'm having a hard time recalling some of the other players in this game for Washington, but it is one of the best wide receiver rooms that we've seen in college football. And knowing that Michael Penix was that Heisman Trophy runner-up and played like this... It makes you wonder how he's going to play in the national championship game. Now, it will be a step up for him to have to top this game. But even if he played 75 to 80%, and if it's any greater than that, Washington is very well in the driver's seat to win the national championship. I like Michael Penix over J.J. McCarthy, but let's keep it to this Washington and Texas game. Here we go. Jalen Polk had a 77-yard gain in this one. We also had uh, Rome. Romo Dunze, like I mentioned, even Jalen McMillan got him on the action. He had a 19-yard touchdown. Michael Penix just could not be flustered in this game. He was very elite. He was very concentrated. And it makes me excited to see what Michael Penix is going to be like as he gets, excuse me, as he gets into the NFL. He's one of the top quarterbacks in this draft. And knowing how he played in this stage, beating Bo Nix twice, and then going in and beating Quinn Ewers, while Arch Manning is also on the sideline, just a little insult to injury there for or the Texas Longhorns, you have to give credit to it. You absolutely have to give credit to it with Kalen DeBoer's, with Michael Penix, with that wide receiver room. Now, the defense is a little interesting. The Huskies' defense surrenders 267 pass yards per game. It's the 11th worst mark in the FBS, and they've allowed 23 passing touchdowns. They even had Quinn Ewers' uh, final 23 attempts in the game, 216 yards, a 41-yard completion to Jordan Winnington on the final drive. Um, but Washington's secondary also has 16 interceptions this year. You got Jabbar Muhammad. Of course, Elijah Jackson came up with a great play when he swatted it away from A.D. Mitchell. Really miss him playing for Georgia. He's been crazy for the Longhorns, and he has scored in every single college football playoff game that he's been in. But you're kind of curious about these last couple of plays that were ran by Texas in this football game. The Longhorns had the ball at the 12-yard line, 15 seconds left, and all they needed was a touchdown, but the Texas offense dialed up a swing pass to Jaden Blue that lost a yard, took five seconds off the clock. A.D. Mitchell had just made one of the best catches of the season on a nice back shoulder fade just in the drive before to make it a one-score game. And then Xavier Worthy, who is an absolute speedster, doesn't necessarily get the best play drawn up for him, or even those guys included for them to be able to take shots at the end zone. Now, you know, Texas has really waited for this chance to get into the college football playoffs and ultimately cement their place as everybody was geeking over them beating Oklahoma State, and rightly so. But the last few play calls from Texas just really leave an odd taste in your mouth, especially when you know that Steve Sarkeesian is the guy, <clears throat> excuse me, 
behind it as well. Michael Penix is just absolutely unstoppable at this point. Six-year senior, carved up the Longhorns all night. But you also see that, you know, again, I mentioned earlier, Texas as well. Ten penalties for 66 yards, seven of those being drive-extending for Texas and drive-ending for Washington as well. So you saw that they had some double-edged penalties here uh, for them and, you know, against them. Texas only came into the game averaging about 50 yards of penalties, six penalties average per game. They almost doubled that up on the penalties with 10 and only about 16 more yards with the 66 yards. <clears throat> in penalties, Jalen Polk and O'Dunes actually both go over 100 yards in this game with Michael Penix, but the penalties were just so bad. So bad for Texas, and I, and I hate to keep bringing those up, but when something as simple as discipline in a football game is going to exclude you from a big win, it's going to get talked about. People like me are going to get up here on their show, and they're going to talk about how the simple things that you couldn't put together is a possible reason why you're sitting at home. And I liked Washington coming into this game. I originally had Texas winning this after we saw the matchups about a month ago when the college football playoff rankings came out. But then as we got closer, I'm like, uh, Michael Penix. I just, I like the way Kalen DeBoers has coached a little more this year. And I, I like Sark over Kalen DeBoers. But Michael Penix has already beaten Bo Nix twice. He'd had his work cut out for him in other games this year. So this game here for Washington was a big one. Of course it was. It was a game to get to the national championship. But they stepped up to the occasion. They did what they had to do. They did what they had to do. And, um, you know, that's why they're able to be here in, in, in the first place in the, in the national championship. But the injury at the end of the game with Dylan Johnson, you see people all over Twitter saying, oh, damn, that injury timeout for, uh, you know, could really come back and hurt Washington because we saw Texas driving down the field at the end of the game to possibly go on and win it. A touchdown would have tied it, an extra point would have won it for them. But we see Washington had the chance to run the game into the final seconds. It was kind of taken away because of an injury to running back Dylan Johnson. Felt kind of weird because that, you know, the Huskies weren't running unnecessarily. A first down would have stopped Texas from getting the ball back. They were supposed to be running the ball, grinding out the clock, playing that smart football because you're in like you're in a playoff game. You're trying to go to the national championship, you know? And um the offense was just it was just a little weird because not the offense, let me take my words back. The idea that certain rules can create exceptions for 10-second runoffs, it can kind of incentivize players to maybe fake injuries or to even have, you know, I'm, I'm just keep it at that. Players to fake injuries to possibly get the clock to stop and also for a 10-second runoff as well. I didn't necessarily like how that played out. Thankfully, it didn't come back and bite Texas, but everyone was kind of biting their nails at the end of that game, wondering what was necessarily going to play out because the Huskies go from having the ball with 50 seconds left on third down to playing defense with 41 seconds left because they lost one of their best offensive players. Just kind of felt unfair. But again, hindsight 2020, Washington beats Texas 37-31 to 31 to advance to the national championship. The national championship will be next Monday. I'll be predicting that game on this Friday show, episode 59. And also Michigan beats Alabama 27-20 in overtime. We will have Michigan and we will have Washington, the first and second best teams in college football, squaring off for the national championship in the final year of the four-year CFP format. And that's how it should be. Get in the chat, get in the comments, you know, what you're feeling about college football so far this year. Who do you have winning the national championship game? Did you expect the outcomes to be any different? 
Let's flop over to the NFL, talk about a couple of Week 17 games. And when I say a couple, I mean two exactly. As the Ravens destroyed the Dolphins, put up a 50-burger up on them, put up a 50-burger on them, 56-19. to And the narrative continues for the Miami Dolphins. They are now 1-4 against teams above 500, with the only win being to the Dallas Cowboys. And while, yes, I did think that was impressive, because the Cowboys are an impressive football team this year, I just personally thought they got the, they caught the Cowboys on a bad day. Am I going to take anything away from that win? No. But you've done it once in four games. And now here you are with the Ravens coming in as one of the best offenses in the league in Miami. And you let them destroy you. Now, I will be sympathetic to Miami. They've lost 10 players in the last three games. It's definitely hard to win games without your big-time players being healthy. Two offensive guards were hurt. Your center was hurt. No Jalen Waddell. Xavier Howard got hurt. Nick Chubb, or not Nick Chubb, Bradley Chubb. I hate that he's in the game as late as he is. Tears his ACL. Jalen Phillips is already hurt. Raheem Moster, who was the NFL's leading touchdown, um, the NFL's touchdown leader, was inactive coming into this game. Teron Armstead's only played nine games. Devon Shane missed time. So Miami's just been banged up a whole lot this year. And we saw that Devon Chain within the first, what, four, five, six games of the year, had already had more career touchdowns than Kyle Pitts had who was a tight end, fourth pick for Atlanta, as we know, coming into his third year in the NFL. So I'm going to have some sympathy, some empathy as well for the Miami Dolphins because we know when the injury bug strikes, it can really hurt you. Now, some people out there are going to want to say, I don't want to hear about injuries. That's okay. I'm just going to keep it real with you because when you don't have Jalen Waddle, when you don't have two offensive guards, when you are losing some of your uh, offensive linemen before that, and now the injuries just keep piling up. It's tough for Miami. It's very, very tough. But Miami, as we know, coming into this game, they've had the big playability. 50-plus yard plays. They have 12 of them, first in the NFL. The second-best team, ironically, the Cleveland Browns, who only have eight. So Miami is far and away the best there. They're second in 25-yard plays, and they're first in 10-yard plays. So we know Miami is able to really run up the score and put those yards up in a football game this season. Lamar and Tua both marched down the field to open the game with a touchdown. So we're like, all right, great. You know, this is going to be a solid football game. You knew it was going to be a very good one. Battle of the MVPs, battle for the one seed. The Ravens get the one seed in this game. Lamar Jackson with a five touchdown game. Everyone's raving for him about being the second uh, or for being the MVP this year. And I honestly have no arguments against it. Josh Allen does rival him some. And of course, you could look at maybe a Christian McCaffrey or possibly a Tyreek Hill. But I think with the way Lamar is playing in these big games, you have no choice but to at least consider him as one of these top candidates. And the Ravens just have another blowout win. I mean, we see when they blow out the Lions, it's one of the more impressive wins of the season for the Baltimore Ravens. Definitely impressive over a solid Dolphins defense who has been very good all year. The Dolphins are in the top categories and points given up per game, yards given up per game. And Lamar is going to continue this MVP run Amazing throw down the right sideline to OBJ inside the five-yard line. Everybody was talking about it as the game was going on. And I really appreciate the relationship that OBJ, Zay Flowers, Isaiah Likely, Justice Hill have all built with Lamar Jackson to be those key guys stepping up all season in the midst of a Mark Andrews being out, in the midst of a Devin DuVernay being out, even on the defensive side of the ball, and then Marlon Humphrey being out. But I should have known when the Ravens ran the kickback almost in the beginning of the second half that it was going to be an onslaught of points as they go on to score 56, a season high for them. You got to remember the Tyreek Hill drop in this game as well. He bobbles the touchdown and then steps out of bounds. So that was something that was negated off the board for them at, uh, for Miami. 
really felt like it changed, you know, the tone of the game. Because it could have been 28 to 21 with the Dolphins aiming to tie it up, but Tua was pressured all day by the best defensive line in the NFL, 57 sacks on the year, which is absolutely insane. And they had the most sacks in the NFL, like I just mentioned, with the 57. But Tua gives it right back also, you know, to see them going back and forth in the uh, back and forth in this game. Lamar fumbles, Tua gives it right back with an interception. Um, you know, spoils the chance that Miami gets after uh, after Lamar's fumble. And I knew coming into this game, this was going to be a game of really speed versus speed. And the Ravens showed why the best defense in the NFL, which they do possess, giving up no more than 17 points per game, why the best defense in the league will complement an explosive offense, which the Baltimore Ravens have. Miami still has work to do defensively, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when you're able to couple an electric quarterback in Lamar Jackson with these players that are playing outstanding with the Baltimore Ravens, and you put that best defense with them, they're, they're going to recap it. Since it's pretty much a quarterback award, I vote Lamar. The Saints should have drafted him Jackson. I like that. I like that. That's getting the first pin of the episode. I'm going to start calling him Lamar. The Saints should have drafted him Jackson. You know, it's funny how many teams did pass on Lamar, though, bro, because he, like, he was great at Louisville. He won the Heisman, of course. But people were just very up, uh, up in the air about Lamar Jackson, and he wasn't really a quarterback that had came forward, and a lot of people that that had seen dual threat Russian quarterbacks like him to that extent in the past in college football. They just, you know, weren't really, they weren't really bought in on him. And, um, you know, at the time, can't blame him, but hindsight 2020, everyone's a fool for passing on Lamar Jackson as he went to the very bottom of the first round and the Baltimore Ravens scooped him up, paid him a fat deal in the offseason that he negotiated without an agent, is having his best season as a passer Already has his most passing yards in a season. Could very well throw over 4,000 yards in a year. And then everybody really has no choice but to give him that respect. Anyways, the Ravens have depth and they needed it all year. We talked about the injuries earlier when I just got to the game. You remember how banged up they were even earlier in the year? Marlon Humphrey, Mark Andrews. Um, who's the running back? It's not Gus Edwards, not Justice So There was a running back injured very early on in the year. I remember when the Bengals lost to the Ravens. I got on this show when I said the Bengals had no reason to lose to the injury-riddled Ravens. And those same injury-riddled Ravens are now 13-3 and with a chance, not even a chance, already at the height of what they can do in the playoffs. Or not what they can do in the playoffs, but where they can get at in the playoffs going in. But a one seed... Home field advantage all the way through. Now, Lamar Jackson's got to step up. Lamar Jackson's got to play very well because we know that we've had those knocks of Lamar Jackson in the playoffs over the last couple of years. And I want to see him be able to change that narrative. And I, I just want to say I'm very happy for the Ravens. I've been rooting for the Ravens to win the Super Bowl outside of my Saints doing it, of course. You know, not an onslaught of rooting for the Ravens to win the Super Bowl, but I've rooted for Lamar a lot. I love what Lamar brings to the table. I think he's a very special quarterback. His game is so fun to watch. Him and Harbaugh's relationship is growing. All the rookies that they're able to bring in with Rashad Bateman, Devin Duvernay, Zay Flowers, getting an OBJ that was off of an injury, working without a Mark Andrews, implementing an Isaiah Likely, Justice Hill, and Gus Edwards, um, you know, stepping up more. J.K. Dobbins was the running back that I was talking about earlier in the year that had... Um, you know, the injuries. I just really hope the Ravens were able to step it up this year. I really, really do because they look like unquestionably the best team in the NFL. They smacked the Niners. 
They've smacked the Lions. They smacked the Dolphins. It's going to be great to watch the Ravens walk into the playoffs. I'm just very, very excited about it. So the Dolphins were the fifth division leader that the Ravens have beat very convincingly this season in the fourth and final opponent of, of what a lot of people thought was the gauntlet of a stretch during the second half of their schedule after they came out of the Week 13 bye. In less than seven days, they held the top two scoring offenses in the league to 19 points each and outscored them 89-38. to 38. So they're putting up against two of the best teams, Niners, Dolphins, they're averaging 45 points a game and giving up 19, beating them by a total score of 89 to 38 in those two games. Lamar was just so comfortable in this game. He was almost perfect in this game. He's having a second best season as a passer. I would say the first best season as a passer, you can't deny 36 touchdowns and six interceptions in the MVP year. I know it was only 3,200 yards, but still, he also had the 1,200 yards rushing in that season as well. He is on pace for his most yards in the season, on pace for his second most touchdown passes. He's got 29 total touchdowns, nine total turnovers. In the MVP year, he had 43 total touchdowns with eight total turnovers. So he's not playing necessarily to that level as he was in his first year as a starter because the league has now gotten tape on Lamar. But Lamar is undoubtedly playing like an MVP. And if it's not Lamar or you know Josh Allen, CMC, Tyreek Hill, like those are the guys that I'm really looking at for MVP because we know Brock Purdy, you know, basically knocked out of it. I mean, yeah, he's still out here with 31 touchdowns and 11 interceptions. And, you know, I wouldn't even go on to say that Brock is knocked out of it, but he did throw four picks against the Ravens. And unfortunately, me being gone on the show the last three weeks, I feel like I've missed a lot of pivotal football. Brandon Staley got fired. The Broncos uh, got blown out by the Lions. The Ravens are out here smacking the Niners. The Eagles have lost like four in a row. There's just a lot of shape-shifting that happened in these last three weeks, and, and I've been peeping it on the sidelines. Don't get me wrong. Anyways, MVP talks. Um, yeah, I mean, we see Brock Purdy, 4,200 yards, 69% completion, 31 touchdowns, 11 picks, 113 passer rating. That's all great. I got respect for Purdy. I got respect for Lamar. It is going to be a tough, tight MVP race, no doubt. And I can't wait to see what it actually comes down to. The Cowboys beat the Lions 20 to 19 and missed a controversial call to end the game. We'll get into that controversial call here in just a second, but I thought Jared Goff was, you know, pretty solid in this game early on. He was solid on the first drive. Dallas's defense locked him up and they forced a field goal. He had the beautiful interception, uh, excuse me, the beautiful inter- the beautiful interception on Dak Prescott in the first quarter of this game, but Dak had an immaculate 92-yard touchdown to CeeDee Lamb in this one. It was a great blitz by the Lions, but an even better illusion and uh, a way to elude the pressure by Dak, and and the throw was just absolutely amazing. After not scoring on the interception or the touchback fumble by Dallas, talking about the Lions here, the fake punt was really what Detroit needed for that spark to get back into this game. But Dallas's defense, again, they stood very tall with the goal line stand against Gibbs and Laporta absolutely shutting it down. And this game is a little bit of a snooze fest, you know, going into the fourth quarter tied at 10 to 10. I thought Goff had an amazing uh, bomb of a throw to Jamison Williams, just a huge heave to him down the field. Jamison Williams is there. Goff picked up on it and immediately sent it downfield, made it a great play. But C.D. Lamb, man. C.D. Lamb. He's just unguardable in this game. And he has been all year. Over 200 yards, 
Got to love the NFL giving him the random drug test immediately after the game, not wasting any time. CD's like, y'all think I'm not that good? I am that good. No worry, I'll give you this clean sample back so you can watch me go out and put another 250 next week. <laughs> but CD Lamb was just so unguardable in this game. He's been making plays all year. Brandon Cooks had a nice, uh, nice fourth quarter catch over the shoulder, along with the touchdown later on in the same drive, if I'm not mistaken. Tony Pollard just made plays all games, very ferocious on the ground. Love to see him still continuing to run the football at a high level. Uh, beautiful well-timed interception as well by Wilson on golf in the fourth quarter. Back and forth, fourth quarter for both of these teams really. Stops, big plays. These guys just were going back and forth all game long. And I don't want to say that it came down to the final call with these two guys, but as it stands, some people might feel that way. Tyreek equals MVP. Ah, yeah, it's very possible, man. It is very, very possible. I hate that he's fell short of the 2K season, but if he goes out and has a 300-yard game, he'll have it, and he might just swipe the MVP right into his arms, but they do have to play the Buffalo Bills. Aiden Hutchinson was an absolute monster in this Cowboys-Lions game. Three sacks, five solo tackles, four tackles for loss, five quarterback hits, one forced fumble, and he just really controlled a lot of this football game, nine and a half sacks on the year. I'm glad Aiden Hutchinson is starting to come around as a player for the Lions. I never thought he was a bust. I always thought he was a great pick, and I thought the Lions should have doubled down last year with picking another defensive lineman as well. They turned out to be a solid football team this year. I do think that that Cinderella run is coming to an end because I am pretty worried about them as they head into the playoffs, like I am with the Eagles, like I am with the Chiefs, but Aiden Hutchinson played very, very well in this game. Let's talk about the controversy around the linemen reporting on the two-point try. Did the referees get it right? It's really some he said, she said BS at this moment because Decker was lined up correctly and footage appears to show that he did report. Jared Goff tells him to go over to the ref and report. It looks like Decker walks over to the ref and reports, but the ref slowly starts to trot away. So you start to ask the question of, did the ref even hear him report? Did he report correctly? X, Y, and Z. But the ref said that the other O-lineman reported and not Taylor Decker. Either way, it was a great play that was negated by an awful call from the referees based on what the footage showed us. And Dan Campbell possibly even got too tricky in this game because he admitted to trying to confuse Dallas on who reported eligible. Brad Allen said he thought number 70, who seemed to be pretty far away from him compared to Taylor Decker, to where Taylor Decker was just really a stone's throw away from the referee. It seemed like that Decker had reported correctly. And that number 70 was fairly far away from the referee. But Dan Campbell now admitting openly they were trying to confuse Dallas, and rightfully so. It was a trick play. You threw it to your lineman. But from what this footage showed me, the refs messed it up again. And, and, I, and I'll be damned if I didn't just post a video of when Kadarius Toney was called off sides. Now, hindsight, did the refs get it right there? No, because they've been blowing, not calling offensive offsides for a while this season. Now, the play has been called more over the last three years. We talked about that. Everyone's talked about that. But the NFL knows that these refs messed up because they immediately come out and say, we're demoting you. You're not working in the postseason. But in the same freaking breath, 
we're going to let you officiate the Steelers-Ravens game in the final game of the year, Week 18, which is nationally televised. Yeah, you and your crew get to officially get to officiate that, which, you know, a lot of games have playoff implications this weekend. That's the fun about Week 16, 17, and 18 is playoff implications are starting to form. You're starting to see what is and what isn't going to happen, who's going to go to the postseason. Among everything, though, I still put this one back on the most aggressive team in the NFL, which is the Detroit Lions, led by their head coach and Dan Campbell, who nobody goes for it more than fourth down at 35% rate more than Dan Campbell and the Detroit Lions. Why not just kick the field goal to tie it? You know, I learned a new word today. It's called hubris. It means excessively confident. Going for it for two to win the game, you call the right play. And it looks like, based on the NFL's reprimandation of demoting them down to the postseason, that you called the right play. You should have went up 21 to 20 and Dallas would have had whatever amount of time to come back and win the game. <clears throat> yes, you could have also kicked it to easily tie it. Not even have to worry about this. But in the same breath, I'm also going to say going for two on the seven-yard line and not kicking it is just beyond me. Absolutely beyond me. Playoff implications. You have the chance to go get the two seed. In the NFC, you're the Detroit freaking Lions this year. You're playing with house money. A lot of people thought you were going to be great. You've had a couple of letdowns as the end of the season came around. And this is what your head coach, Dan Campbell, decides to do. Among all that, though, people just want to say, oh, it was just, you know, one play. This is what Dan Campbell does. Well, one, it lost you the game. Two, I'm going to use that word again. It was hubris. And three, from the seven, just wasn't the right call. Hindsight. Yes, we understand you called the right play, but the, the penalty wiped that off the board. And we've, it's been clear that the refs and Roger Goodell are not going to overturn a wrongly called call, which is unfortunate because it's kind of ruining the game. But there were three aggressive plays in this game for Dan Campbell. There was a fake punt, which was a good call, obviously because it worked. Detroit needed that momentum. I mentioned that earlier on. But in the same possession of that fake punt, there was a fourth and four at the Cowboys' four-yard line. Dan Campbell passed up a chip shot field goal to go for the touchdown. Jared Goff threw it to Sam Laporte. It was incomplete right there. You win the game if you just take those points. Hindsight. Final possession of the game. Touchdown pass to wide receiver Amon Ross St. Brown makes it 20-19. Of course, Dan Campbell goes for it. Didn't work. The officials got together. The Lions violated the rule, so they said... Clearly, they got it wrong. So Dan Campbell was aggressive three times in this game. And, you know, really you could say two times paid off to the refs wrapped one away, so only one time it paid off. And, you know, they go for it from the seven, and it's just absolutely stupid. Absolutely stupid. The Lions should have won this game. People are saying the Lions got robbed. They could have They could have sent the damn game to overtime. But Dan Campbell wants to bite off one kneecap, and when they get back up, they're biting another kneecap, and we're going to punch you in the mouth and then turn around and hit you with a left hook and then and then break your leg, just alluding to his you know his attitude and the way that he had his uh, uh, speech when he was first hired, excuse me, by the Lions. But Cowboys win this game, 20-19. Thought Dak played well. Uh, I thought both teams played well, realistically. Again, it was kind of a snooze fest. You know, stalemate 10-10 uh, going into the fourth quarter. A couple of big plays. Aiden Hutchinson was a big highlight of this one. Dan Campbell's aggression will continue to be talked about, whether it's a win or a loss with the Detroit Lions. But I, I want to hear from you all in the chat, in the comments. Thoughts on DeMar Hamlin projected to win comeback player of the year? You know, I've seen a lot of messed up memes about this. 
Um, DeMar Hamlin, I don't think he even has played 20 snaps this year. Uh, is his story great? Yes. But Joe Flacco should arguably win comeback player of the year. Or someone who's had more of an impact than DeMar Hamlin. DeMar Hamlin's story is fantastic. And I even said it. It's going to be the biggest layup, give me, award that we've probably ever seen in the history of the sport next to when Alex Smith came back because he broke his leg and damn near had to have taken off. So knowing how the NFL acts in that aspect, DeMar, probably, DeMar Hamlin's probably going to win the award. Do I think he should, though? No. But we'll talk about those awards um, in about a few weeks here on the show as the NFL awards are just a month away. This has been the NFL with AJL episode 58. Appreciate the heck out of everybody joining me for the first show of 2022 as we are close to wrapping up season one of the NFL with AJL. Season two will start right after the Super Bowl. I came back with the show right after the conference championship games or right before the conference championship games. So I want to kind of honor that stick on the same timeline. Season two will be out or will start in about a month. Please make sure to like and share the stream wherever you may be watching. Subscribe on YouTube. Hit the bell so you never miss any of our content. You can also drop a super chat. You can also drop a super thanks on the YouTube chat box. No donation is too big. No donation is too small. If you want to support the channel directly, that is the best way to do it. Or you can hit me up, 678-480-8716. If you want to send me some money for the show, I'm not the type of guy to ask for stuff like that. But we are eligible because of your support on YouTube. And I want to appreciate and honor that opportunity for not only me, but you as well. The QR code will give you every bit of social media and podcast content that is available at the NFL with AJL. Hashtag the NFL with AJL. And as always, we're sponsored New Year's, same real estate sponsor, buy and sell with AJL for all your worldwide professional real estate needs. Whether you're looking to buy a home, sell a home, or invest in real estate, one of the most important asset classes you can use for retirement. Get at them on social media, DM them, get in the comments, comment on some of their social posts with your email if you want to get on their exclusive newsletter and even be included on the AI that they've implemented into the system to really benefit their buyers and sellers. Got to have a fun segment here on the show, Playoff Contenders Recipe for Success. Let's see, they got one, two, three, four, five, about 10, maybe 11 teams. Too lazy to count all the way through because I don't want to hold the show up awkwardly, but we're going to get into it. Of course, playoff contenders recipe for success. The Dolphins. Well, first of all, what do these playoff contenders, in my opinion, these are the 10, 11 teams in the NFL that have a true shot at going to and even winning the Super Bowl. But it's going to take these recipes for success to get them through the postseason and ultimately to reach Super Bowl, excuse me, 58. The Miami Dolphins, they need to stay healthy. They need to actually compete against good teams consistently. The defense needs to hold up in big moments also against high-powered offenses because we saw they were unable to do that against the Baltimore Ravens. They're 1-4 and four in uh, against teams this year that are above 500. And the Miami Dolphins are a great offense. They're a pretty solid defense as well. They're up in the tops of the league again in terms of yards given up per game, points given up per game, sacks, turnovers. The Baltimore Ravens were first, are first in the league in sacks given up. The Miami Dolphins are fourth. So they had their work cut out for them in their most recent game, and they weren't able to pull it out. Yeah, I don't think DeMar should get it either. 
Darby, but yes, the Dolphins need to stay healthy. We've seen them struggle with health all year. We talked about that earlier in the show. Actually compete against good teams as they are now 1-4 against teams above 500. I think they just caught the Cowboys on a bad day. And that defense does have to hold up in big moments. But again, I'm going to have some slack for them. No X Howard. Two offensive, two offensive, two offensive guards are hurt. Uh, Chubb, Phillips, Waddle. We know it's piling up. And the center is hurt. Teron Armstead as well. We know it's piling up. The Dallas Cowboys playoff recipe for success is they need to play more consistent football against good teams. You look at the past month, they had a close win to the Lions, not really sold on the Lions. They lost to the Dolphins, who just got blown out by the Ravens, who, yes, are the best team in the league. But, you know, this is why I said the last three, four weeks of the NFL season, like I'm pissed that I missed it because I feel like <coughs> some storylines were drawn and some narratives were possibly cemented. Bad loss to the Bills for the Cowboys. They had an early season loss to the Cardinals. They were blown out by the Niners. I think I think they need to keep their offensive keep their offense explosive as well, and don't depend too much on the defense because we did see earlier in the year when they didn't get pick sixes from Deron Bland or scooping scores from a possible Dexter Lawrence or Micah Parsons. If the defense wasn't clicking, the Cowboys' offense was actually getting exposed about a month or two ago in the NFL. And we talked about that here on the show. And now their offense is one of the best. CeeDee Lamb is one of the best. Dak Prescott is in the MVP conversation. 32 touchdowns and interceptions. And he should be. He's played the best football of his career. He's in the best season of his career. Dak is at his peak. But I still need them to play more consistent football against good teams. Don't play down to the competition. Play up and above your competition. And keep your defense at bay as well. Baltimore Ravens playoff recipe for success. Lamar Jackson continued to be great from the pocket, continued to be an MVP candidate, 24 touchdowns, seven picks, most passing yards in the season, and this is his best year as a passer. A lot of people believed coming into the year it was going to be that for him, and it turns out that it is absolutely doing that. The Ravens are great at getting after the quarterback. They need to keep doing that. 57 sacks leads the league, best defense in the NFL in points and yards. The defense needs to stay elite. I firmly believe that it will. And the offense staying not only explosive, but creative relying on those younger players because they've proven to be able to be trustable in an Isaiah Likely, in a Zay Flowers, in a you know young veteran like a Rashad Bateman, in an older veteran like OBJ, of course a veteran like Lamar Jackson. They're staying very creative. I can appreciate that. This feels like the Ravens for one Lamar won MVP in 2019. And again, I am rooting for them to go all the way and win the Super Bowl. The Philadelphia Eagles playoff recipe for success is, is ugh. I, first of all, that's how I feel about the Eagles. Just ugh. losing four out of the last five. You could have lost to the Giants. You just lost to a three-win Cardinals team. Your offensive play calling is getting absolutely exposed. I mean, you got people clipping your drives talking about what down and distance it was and what plays you ran. Brian Johnson looks bad. That Eagles secondary looks bad. The Eagles have to play better defense, especially in the secondary, as it's one of the worst passing defenses in the NFL. The offensive play calling is atrocious. Jalen Hurts, A.J. Brown, DeAndre Swift, they are just not getting calls drawn up for them very well. And that's a testament to Brian Johnson. I mean, you're throwing a, a screen pass to Kenneth Canewell, a QB power on first and 20. What's happening with the Philadelphia Eagles? Oh, wait. They just lost to the defensive coordinator that they let go after giving up 38 in the Super Bowl. 
and their offensive play caller in Brian Johnson is horrible. Meanwhile, Shane Steichen is in running for coach of the year with the Indianapolis Colts, who have no business being 9-7 and seven and sniffing the AFC playoffs. But I'll hold my hands up and uh, just let y'all have it that. They got to get their playmakers more involved. They got to call better plays offensively. And that defense just has to improve overall. So, you know, it kind of sounds like the Eagles are uh, flawed on both sides of the football pretty heavily. I don't think they'll be in the Super Bowl this year like I thought at the beginning of the year. The San Francisco 49ers, they got to keep doing what they're doing. Their health has literally been their only downfall. And we saw that when Trent Williams, when Christian McCaffrey, when Debo Samuel were injured earlier in the year, that's why they were losing the type of games that they were. That's why they were playing the types of games that they were. They're physical. They're one of the most balanced teams in the NFL. They have an MVP candidate in Brock Purdy, which is quite impressive. And overall, the Niners are a very, very solid football team. You can still make the argument for them as the best team in the NFL, but the Ravens did handle business on them. We did see the Niners get blasted a couple of times again while they were injured. That's the only recipe for success I have for them. Just keep doing what they're doing because that's, exact, that's exactly what's gotten them to this point. And if they can stay healthy on all parameters, get those playmakers involved, keep their guys upright, they're going to be in for a very nice NFL postseason. The Kansas City Chiefs. Patrick Mahomes needs to trust his receivers more. They need to establish explosive plays. The receivers also need to drop the ball less, as we've seen Rasheed Rice, and we've seen Kadarius Toney, and we've seen MBS just really struggle to reel in these passes to keep it easier for Mahomes to get open on these routes and just overall deliver. It hasn't been a strong suit for the Kansas City Chiefs this year. Now, the defense is solid. Very, very solid. It's elite. I think it'll stay that way. It's top five in yards given up and points given up. Steve Spagnola is doing an immaculate, fantastic job with the Kansas City Chiefs defense. And, you know, that's not going to really be a strong suit of theirs. But they have to get creative. They have to get explosive on the offensive side of the football because that's the Kansas City Chiefs that everyone's come to know. That's been the unbeatable Chiefs that everybody's seen. And if the Chiefs aren't able to perform like that, if Mahomes cannot trust these receivers more, because you're not getting anybody new in. I mean, unless you pull someone off the practice squad like the Ravens did with, you know, almost said Randall Cunningham, Malik Cunningham from the Patriots, nothing's going to be different. Nothing's going to change. Unless we've been saying, you know, like we've been saying all year, Andy Reid just got some tricks in the bag that he's holding out for the playoffs, that might be the Chiefs' only saving grace. The Cleveland Browns, Joe Flacco has to continue playing confidently. The Browns have to continue being resilient. Joe Flacco is on an absolute tear. He deserves comeback player of the year. He's playing comfortable. He's playing with a lot of swagger, very fearless, and he can put the Browns on his back. The Cleveland Browns this year, as great as I thought they were going to be with Deshaun Watson, have now have Joe Flacco, who was just on his couch a month ago, clinching them a playoff spot, taking them to the playoffs. And honestly, the Cleveland Browns could go to the Super Bowl. The defense is elite. They continue to smother other offenses. They're fourth in the NFL in interceptions. They're seventh in the NFL in fumbles. And the Browns are just resilient. No Nick Chubb. No $230 million quarterback in Deshaun Watson. You lose DTR. You lose P.J. Walker. David Njoku's had a couple of bad injuries off the field this year and is still able to show up and provide. David Njoku was about to get Shannon Sharp's record. Scaled back a little bit. The opponents realized who they were facing, and they weren't going to let that happen. But Joe Flacco, as long as he continues to play confidently and fearless, the Browns being resilient through these injuries and that defense staying where it needs to stay, the Browns' recipe for success is absolutely right there. 
The Detroit Lions is pretty simple. They need to play up to their competition. There's been quite a few games this year where the Lions have just not played well and to fairly bad teams. I want to check the schedule to make sure that I'm thinking about these right because this is really a, a key factor for the Detroit Lions that makes me so reserved with them, even as an 11-5 and team. They go up 21-0 on the Saints. They only end up winning, uh, up winning 33-28. They lose 28-13 to the Bears. They only beat the Vikings by six. They should have beat the Cowboys. I, I you know, we'll, we'll say the refs did what they did there. They barely beat the Bears back on November 19th, 31 to 26. The Packers and the Lions, they lose to the Lions by se- uh, they lose to the Packers by seven. They win the shootout, 41 to 38 over the Chargers. Beating the Raiders by 12, losing to the Ravens by uh 32. It's just been a very on and off type of season for the Detroit Lions and that all stems around Jared Goff playing clean football. He didn't play clean football against the Cowboys, so you can argue that they didn't have the right to win that game. He didn't play clean football in quite a few games this year, and other teams were able to take advantage of that. And just like we've seen, when you force a quarterback off his rocker and he's not able to do the things that he's comfortable doing, you're going to have them lose football games. So Jared Goff needs to play clean football, and they need to play up to their competition. The Rams, their literal recipe for success is Sean McVay keeping Matthew Stafford, Kyron Williams, Puka Nakua, and Cooper Cup on the field because when they are, it is by yards per game the number one offense in the NFL when the four of them are on the field. Stafford, Kyron Williams, Puka, and Cup. They're unstoppable. Sean McVay, absolutely coach of the year candidate. Ton of young teams. We got Matthew Stafford wife in the offseason talking about how the team is so young. Just clinched the playoffs. Yeah, it's in a week NFC. Yeah, it wouldn't have happened in the AFC. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe not with these eight and eight, nine and seven teams kind of, you know, trying to make a push in the AFC. But Sean McVay coaching his ass off, this defense playing the way that it does. Matthew Matthew Stafford playing very comfortable, and it's it's just very impressive. I'm very impressed with the way that. Matthew Stafford and the Rams are performing so far this year. And even with Matthew Stafford coming off, you know, an injury, even with Matthew Stafford coming off an injury the way that he did, even with Cooper Cup coming off the injury the way that he did, Cooper Cup now being 30 years old, still 737 yards, touchdowns on the year, still had a couple of 100-yard games. We know that he had the insane 1,900-yard season a couple years ago, 16 touchdowns. We know he was a triple crown winner. They got that guy Puka Nakua in there who's playing his life away. Kyron Williams is a very solid rookie as well. We talked about them going toe-to-toe with the Bengals earlier in the year when they still had Joe Burrow. So the Rams keeping their guys on the field healthy and Sean McVay continuing to coach the way that he does is absolutely going to propel these Los Angeles Rams. Last two teams here, the Jaguars. Trevor Lawrence's health. Trevor Lawrence finally missed his first game as an NFL starter just the other day. And Trevor Lawrence has realistically been hurt since about week seven or eight it was against my Saints back in October. He was questionable in that game. His ankle was kind of rough. He runs it all over us in key moments, and the Saints end up losing that game. You look in these other games, throwing a couple of interceptions, two, three, four interceptions in the last few weeks of the year when he shouldn't have been played. I'm even telling you know my good friends that are Jaguars fans, I'm like, what are the Jags doing playing Trevor Lawrence? I know he's resilient. I know he's the number one overall pick. I know he's that franchise savior. But you have to preserve him as much as you can. And I don't think that the uh, Jaguars have been doing that. 
The defense has to be more effective as well. It's middle of the pack, if not to bottom third in all of the major categories, turnovers, you know, takeaways, yards, points per game. But Trevor Lawrence's health really has to be ideal because Trevor Lawrence has been kind of disappointing this year. Only 19 touchdowns, I think about 11 interceptions, not even cracking 4,000 yards yet. And again, I understand he's been hurt for about half of the year. He has not been 100%. And I saw that the moment he came to New Orleans and played my Saints on Thursday Night Football. But this is what Trevor Lawrence is called in for. He doubled his touchdowns and kind of cut his interceptions in half the first year he was free of Urban Meyer and actually had Doug Peterson at his disposal. And then the Bills, they simply just need to stay hot. They're one of the hottest teams in the NFL right now, next to Cleveland, next to Baltimore. They could have beat the Eagles about a month back too, but Josh Allen loves to commit turnovers. And that's another thing is Josh Allen has to limit his turnovers. The Bills have kind of learned to run the ball to trust James Cook. Stephon Diggs does need to come back to life as well. So that's another point I'm going to throw in there. You got to incorporate Stephon Diggs more. You got to get your playmakers in space. You got to get your offense clicking more because we know that that's a very key point of the Buffalo Bills being able to win football games. But they're one of the hottest teams in the NFL right now. They got to stay hot. Josh Allen has to limit those turnovers and they have to get that offense going on all cylinders. Last topic of the show before we get out of here. I know it happened a couple weeks back, but I couldn't not address this as Russell Wilson has been benched for the last two games of the season. He's already missed one, and now he's going to miss the next one. And the accusations are running absolutely wild. Here's Here was the situation. If he's entered in the last two games of the year, the Broncos would have to pay him $37 million guaranteed for the next season. His contract really kicks in next year. He already got his $38 million, I believe it was, guaranteed for this year because he was good coming into the 2023 year, just like they don't want to have his 2025 money kick in if for some reason in this early part of 2024 he would get injured in the last two games of the year. Russell Wilson is immediately out here blasting them, saying the Broncos told him if he didn't redo his contract that they would bench him. And the NFLPA has come out and said that that was essentially illegal. And I can understand that. I can side with that. Because if you're going to, in one breath, tell me that if I don't correct my contract and the injury clause in it, that you're going to bench me, but you're also going to come out here and tell me to win games with the kind of volatile head coach that Sean Payton is, which I stand corrected and wrong on that. No, I stand corrected about 50-50 on that. I do believe Sean Payton fixed Russell Wilson. I do believe Sean Payton fixed the Broncos. It was too little too late. He had to have 70 points dropped on his head and start one and five before he goes on to be eliminated at, you know, about a 500 record. And it would have been a great turnaround for Sean Payton as well. But I think it's absolutely insane that people still want Russell Wilson to fail at this magnitude because it it, it doesn't make sense to me. Russell Wilson is one of the few legends, if not the only legend that I've seen, next to the recent times of Peyton Manning, who was also a Denver Bronco, to where that one wash, or not one wash, that one bad season, which it was really bad. Don't get me wrong. That one really bad season, you're just going to throw all that away from Russell Wilson. All the MVP play, all the playoff wins, the Super Bowl appearances, the Super Bowl win. I get it. It was 10 years ago. I get that. But to act like Russell Wilson has not played at a good quarterback level this year, knowing how piss poor he was 
under Nathaniel Hackett, and Sean Payton had fixed him by about the middle two-thirds of the season and had had him throwing more touchdowns and less interceptions already this year than it wasn't in his entire year last year. At least that stands correct for the touchdown parts. Interceptions, obviously, because he hasn't played all the games yet. Russell Wilson is undeniably a better quarterback this year under Sean Payton. And I just think it's nuts that some people are saying Russell Wilson played his last game. A legend can have one offseason and people will call him washed. And that blows my damn mind. He's been with two coaches and two systems in two years. It's been a bumpy ride with Denver. I said it when I was still with Petty Sports. New owner, new head coach. Team had just been sold, so new owner. And he had a brand new quarterback coming in who had a rough exit with his team in the Seattle Seahawks. And now it's been a very bumpy ride with the Denver Broncos. Now I got to give some respect to Sean Payton. He comes out and he says, oh, I can't replace the whole offensive line or the whole wide receiver room. He did call out the Broncos offense as a whole. And obviously when you're a quarterback who's got a 200 plus million dollar contract and the team traded the house for you because of what you were and what you are supposed to be, the captain of the team who makes the most money, yeah, they're going to start it there. They're going to sit you down. They're going to reprimand you. And honestly, when you look at it, it's very simple. They want to get out from under that contract. Now, do I think it's a little premature, yes, because of what surrounded Russell Wilson. But the Broncos paid that money. The Broncos traded all those assets and all that capital for Russell Wilson. So now the Broncos are faced to make a decision. And if they would have signed Russell Wilson to a more reasonable contract, this type of decision wouldn't have to be made. Because now, People are saying Russell Wilson might have played his last game, and he's expected to be released or cut in March. Absolutely insane to me. It has been a clear turnaround from season one to season two with Russell Wilson from Nathaniel Hackett to Sean Payton. And yes, I came on here and I said that Russell Wilson and Sean Payton were going to bring things out of each other that we never saw. Did that necessarily happen? No. Did Sean Payton trust Russell Wilson's arm? No. It seemed like he still had kind of that Drew Brees mentality. I need to tailor it around my quarterback and not for my quarterback. Yes, there is a difference there in order for Russell Wilson to succeed. But to know the type of coach that Sean Payton is, and to know that it's playing out this way with Russell Wilson honestly baffles me. I think it would be hilarious and honestly just wild as hell if the Broncos actually moved off of him. Is his play lining up to his contract? No. Russell Wilson played a bad stretch of about 20 games. Let's just let's just say that for conversation's sake. He's had more bad games than good games. All of last season was bad. Russell Wilson, up until the point of the Broncos started winning after they started one and five, was bad. If Russell Wilson had had, and maybe this is a dumb moment for you guys, if Russell Wilson would have had a season last year, so if this year's season would have happened last year and then also this year, so basically let's just say within two years, Russell Wilson's thrown for uh, 50 touchdowns, 15 interceptions for conversation's sake with the Denver Broncos. They're not having this conversation. But that contract 
is very simple. That contract is not bearing well for them because it kicks in and then he's going to make 37 and he's going to make 40 and he's going to make 45 and he's going to make 50. And an expensive quarterback contract is one of the most invaluable things in the NFL. We're watching the Chiefs go through it right now. Tyreek Hill has left and the offense is rough. And yes, they lost the enemy, which is a good part of that. But low cash equals hard to get weapons. Josh Allen has a big contract. Joe Burrow has a big contract. Jalen Hurts has a big contract. Justin Herbert has a big contract. I've always said the NFL is kind of going in the wrong way. Hell yes, pay these guys. They are the face of your franchise, the most important position in the sport, and you are nothing without it. But these $55 and $6 million deals are ruining NFL franchises. And this is a prime example of it right here because I will sit here and tell you right now, I'm going to be pissed if Russell Wilson gets the same type of treatment, it's not the same treatment, but when Matt Ryan left Atlanta, Falcons were ready to push him out. I thought Matt Ryan could have been good with the Colts. And yes, he was out of his prime compared to maybe Russ being slightly out of his prime. But I don't want to see another veteran and damn near legend get this type of mistreatment. Because when Matt Ryan went to the Colts, things around him were not well. Frank Wright couldn't decide between Sam Ellinger and him and the players he wanted to start. And now you have the Broncos in the middle of a sale when Russell Wilson came over. Nathaniel Hackett, one of the worst coaching jobs in history. And now he's with Sean Payton, who... I got to speak on Sean Payton now because now that this part has played out, it, it does kind of bug me. Because... You know, what What I see now is Sean Payton basically faked a retirement to get out of New Orleans because he knew it was going to be hard without Drew Brees. He didn't get to pick his quarterback here with Russell Wilson. And immediately out the gate, he's like, worst coaching job in NFL history, talking about Nathaniel Hackett. Russ, you need to quit kissing babies and shaking hands. Drew Brees was one of the biggest handshakers and baby kissers in New Orleans. That's why he's got the status of what he does in New Orleans. But I think Sean Payton wanted a little bit of a power trip. He wanted to feel like maybe it was New Orleans again. Like he had to take over a laughing stock, which it was last year as a 5-12 team in the Denver Broncos. But Sean Payton, I wouldn't even say he was in over his skis, but he definitely knocked Russell Wilson down from the moment he came in. Stop shaking hands. Stop kissing babies. Wasn't it a reality check? Yeah. But it felt like he was trying to change Russell Wilson for the player that he was. And credit to Russ for being professional, saying that the saying that God, you know, his Lord and Jesus Christ, which I'm totally behind him for, has a plan for him. Letting Sean Payton go off on him on the sidelines multiple times just to possibly get that provocation from Russell Wilson. That's the lady calling me in the middle of the show, and I think the phone just died. Yep, it did. But she's got my food. Shout out to the future wifey. Love you, babe. Always appreciate your support. Always putting on for me. Bringing me home some amazing food. But anyways, Sean Payton has cut down Russell Wilson a lot this year. He has had some weird antics with the Denver Broncos this year. And because he didn't get to pick his own quarterback in the way that this season is happening, he could possibly be released, Russell Wilson. And he's already been benched. Do I think it's on Russ? with his possible level of play to consider the price reduction in his contract because of how he's played? Absolutely. If he wants to stay a Denver Bronco. 
He might not want to be. He might not want to be under Sean Payton's vision. And this is a lot to grasp. To realize that it's played out this way for Sean Payton, it almost feels like it's well-deserved. Because you don't get to leave a, t a city and a team that you've built in the New Orleans Saints and immediately try to get success. And don't get me wrong. I was rooting for the Broncos a lot this year. I was rooting for the Broncos to win the Super Bowl. I made multiple videos about them. I thought they were going to be in the AFC Championship. I thought Russell Wilson was going to play better. Russell Wilson did not play better until about a third of the way through the year. And I made a video. Y'all blew it up for me. Sean Payton fixed Russell Wilson. And I really think he did. But also in the same breath, if someone came to you at your job, shout out Shannon Sharp for saying this on Nightcap because fans are really quick to do this. And I want to pose this question before we get out of the show. If you make $200,000 a year and your employer comes to you and asks you to take a $50,000 pay cut because they want to pay the HR person, are you cool with that? I bet you every single one of you would say no. Most of you in the public eye would say no. And me included, I would say no. I'm also the quick one to turn around and tell an athlete to take a pay cut based on their performance. And now I have a different vision to that because if Russell Wilson was willingly given that contract, that fat ass extension by the Denver Broncos and all those players were traded for him, why should he rightfully take that pay cut? He was locked into that. They agreed to that up front. If not, he'll take his guaranteed money and ride. Do I think he should because of what's happening and his play not necessarily adding up? Yes. And if the last season would have happened, if last season wouldn't have happened, if, if this season would have been like last season, or excuse me, if this season, hell, hold on, Adam. If last season would have been played out like this season, again, 15 touch, 50 touchdowns, 15 interceptions, I don't think they're having a conversation about this. I really don't because that's solid play. Maybe not to the level of a $230 million quarterback or $225 million, whatever it was. But I think it would be crazy to see Russell Wilson get benched not to see Russell Wilson get benched. To see Russell, because he's already been benched. To see Russell Wilson get released and possibly cut. Because I'm going to tell you right now, there's NFL teams out there that want him. Maybe not for that price tag. Maybe he doesn't want to sign for a discount. But I could see Russ going to another team, taking a discount in a more stable organization. To get out of this. Saints, but people do have a marker in point. You got 70 dropped on your head earlier in the year after you made the horrible comments that you did after scolding Russell Wilson the way that you did, trying to change him the way that you did. And I'm not going to completely tear Sean Payton down for that because he coaches hard. That's what he did. That's how he was in New Orleans. We heard the reports of Sean Payton kind of being an asshole in Louisiana with the Saints, but he wasn't Daring to treat Drew Brees like that. Maybe it's because Drew Brees won a Super Bowl. Oh, wait, so did Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson went to back-to-back. -back. Now, yes, should Sean Payton have coached two or maybe three Super Bowls? 100%, because we saw the Saints go on those runs. But this handling of Russell Wilson and benching him, because if he gets hurt, they're going to have to guarantee the money next year, that speaks for it. They want to get out of the contract. They don't want to take the risk. And those parameters more than likely show that he's moving on. Appreciate y'all for joining me on episode 58 after the three-week three hiatus. This has been episode 58 of the NFL with AJL. I appreciate everybody jumping into the show tonight as we chopped up the CFP semifinals reaction. 
the Ravens being Super Bowl bound, Russell Wilson being benched, talking about playoff contenders and more in this episode. Of course, please, before we get out of here, if you want to drop a super chat to support the channel, you can do that on YouTube or a super thanks. No donation is too big or too small. Or if you want to support the show in another way, you can DM me on social media. We can have a conversation about it. Y'all make sure to like and share the stream wherever you're watching. Hit the bell on YouTube so you never miss a post. Subscribe as well as we're on the push for well over 1,000 subscribers in 2024. We're sitting at a little over 730 right now, if I'm not mistaken. Y'all get in the chat, get in the comments, get at me on social media, at the NFL with AJL, hashtag the NFL with AJL on all social media platforms. You got the QR code there in the corner of the screen. As always, I love y'all. I appreciate y'all. I need y'all. And I will see you in episode 59.